individuals who are genuinely repentant of their behavior. And I want to live in a world where I can be forgiven. And unfortunately, like I was going back to, we don't generally, I mean, even now, it's like better just to not exist on social media because by God, if you make one mistake, people want to destroy your whole life for it. Right. And I'm kind of, it's tiring. It's a tiring world to live in. And it's the world that people who are formerly incarcerated live in every day. Hello, hello. Hey, Jonathan Kleck back. You know what? I stole that from Michael Smirconish. That's that's totally an, an unoriginal. Do you guys, if you follow Michael Smirconish, he always starts with hello, hello. And uh, I'm unoriginal enough apparently to just copy what he does. So thanks, Michael, for, for giving me uh, something to work with. Anyway, Jonathan Kleck back with another episode of the Greencastle podcast. Um, you know, we, we are a military-based uh, company. All of our uh, uh, folks that work in the company are veterans. Um, so we're often veteran-focused on the podcast. But today we went a little bit of a different direction because not only are we veteran-focused, but we really like to tell stories about people who are doing something cool in the world. Um, today we have on somebody who's not a veteran. He actually comes from a family of veterans, but um, he's doing some really cool stuff. A guy named Ricky Staub with Neighborhood Film Company. You may not know Ricky, but you know his work. He's got a feature film coming out, Concrete Cowboy, starring Idris Elba. But but all that aside, so that's pretty cool that Ricky's doing big things in Hollywood. He's a Philly kid going on to do big things. But what we're most excited about was Ricky has uh, a really cool philanthropic effort, something that's really unique that I haven't seen really anybody else doing. We had a chance to talk to him about what he's doing with formerly incarcerated individuals and how he's helping to give them a a renewed opportunity in life. This is a really cool story. It's really cool about how he came to to be inspired to do this and and what he's done and and the lives that he's impacted and what those individuals have gone on to do and that trickle down, that butterfly effect of of how they've gone on to to benefit folks in the world. Very cool story. Um, Gives you a cool opportunity to think about uh, what you might want to do and uh, to help other people get a leg up. Anyway, stay tuned. Thanks, Ricky, for joining us. You guys are going to enjoy this one. This individuality stuff is a bunch of crap. There's a reason why. A master of innovation. The key to this growing is you. Any rational person would give up. I can't disagree with that. Make sure that we're not prisoners of our own experiences. You need a team of great people. We'll not tolerate a loser. What they need is a common vision. Helping organizations win one veteran at a time. This is the Greencastle Podcast. Hey, Ricky. Thanks for joining us today, man. Appreciate your time. Uh, I mentioned to you earlier that I've been following your story. I think it's a fascinating story um, just about the lengths that you went to to, uh, to, to, to pursue your passion. I've read a bunch of articles and, and I've seen some posts. Um, mostly about what I want to talk about. One, obviously, you have some really, you've done some really big things in, in the, the film industry. Um, but my fascination is with uh, the purpose and the mission behind neighborhood film company and, and, and how you've taken a leap with, you know, for, for a guy who's never really dealt with, uh, former inmates or the, those who were formerly incarcerated, the, the lengths that I, you went to, to, to really, you know, embrace that mission and to help those who were formerly incarcerated. Uh, I want to kind of just dig into that if we can a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Where, uh should we start? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, uh, I read uh, a couple articles in it, and it said that you had finished filming uh, The Last Airbender, working with uh, M. Night Shyamalan here in Philly, and at some point you got exposed to um, uh, th- those who were homeless. You were in a park, or, you, or, or I know there's a bunch of things that sort of happened simultaneously, right? You'd, you met up with uh, 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 one of the nuns from Project Home. Um, yeah. Just kind of take us back to the beginning, man. I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated by this. Yeah, so that uh, I should probably know the year offhand, but I don't. But I was, you know, in my mid twenties, I was working for producer Sam Mercer, who has uh, had done a lot of nice films. So that's what actually brought me to Philadelphia from LA. Um, but yeah, at the time, it was kind of a combination of things. Uh, I mean, I loved my job. I was doing what I'd always dreamed. Uh, Sam was a hard boss, but a great boss. You know, a lot of what. I am today is because of him. And 
I've obviously stayed close with him. You know, he was a producer on my first movie, which is a dream in and of itself. But yeah, at the time, you know, to be totally frank and honest, I was wrestling with a lot of like very easy questions. You know, why am I alive? Is there a God? What happens when you die? You know, simple 25 year old questions. <laughs> yeah. um, or midlife questions was, that hit you. At yeah, 25. more midlife. I just advanced it, you know, <laughs> uh, before I had, had already been married and kids in a house. Um, just figured I'd tackle it early, you know, get it out of the way. Um, but I genuinely like started to ask myself those questions. Um, and it really led me down a path of interrogating, like, what do I believe about? Is there a God or is there not, you know? Um, and you know, for people listening, it's not really not here to like land where I thought and why, but it did lead me to investigate truths about, who God is not based on what I'm taught online or in the media, because what I learned is that anything I learned growing up, I didn't grow up in like a very churched home or anything like that. But what I started to do was actually read a Bible to start there. But what I was reading was very different than what I came to understand publicly in like a church or media. And so there was this great chasm, but what really was really interesting to me was this man of Jesus, if he was God, how his genuine desire was for the least of these. And you probably heard that term, but this idea that yeah. God actually cares most about those who we as a people care about the least. And Wait, so there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a country song that, um, plenty and, of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, yeah. There's a country song about God and imagine that, right. Uh, that talks about, um, you know, we are measured when we get to the pearly gates, you're measured by how you treated the, the, the most insignificant people in your life, right? And I use that word insignificant loosely, but the people who, who were least ability, you know, least able to, to help you get a leg up in life. And how did you, you treat those? And, and as I, as I hear you say it, I'm thinking like, that's, there's a lot of truth to that, right? Yeah. Well, it goes even a step further in scripture. It talks about like that Jesus is actually like amongst those people, yeah. And, you know, it's it's lost on like our culture that like he's talking about prostitutes, he's talking about drunks, homeless, like people that are like very downtrodden, irregardless of whether those decisions they made got them there, um, if that makes sense. But um, so, yeah, I was very taken by this concept of that. If there was a God and these were the people he cared about and promised that this God dwelled amongst them. I wanted to meet such people. So in, in, in kind of a smart assy way, I wanted to test if that was real. And I was living in Philadelphia. didn't, wasn't around my normal friend group. You know, I didn't, hadn't really made a lot of friends yet because I was new in Philly. And so I started going, I started one weekend, I packed a, like a backpack full of brown bag lunches and went out to find the least of these. And one of those people that ended up being very transformational in my life, I mean, my whole life pivoted off this relationship was this homeless man named Will, who really opened my eyes to a homelessness, but by virtue of his being formally incarcerated and all the hurdles that were set in front of him. And, you know, I talk about this in like my TED talks, not to regurgitate things, but like, I was really Again, I probably always have had this like smart assy nature, like snarky, like devil's advocate. But I was like, in my mind thinking like, it's great that you're trying to write your life, but there's just no way that you're going to ever like have a career like I have based on just what I know about our world. And right. that's really, but then the more that I became friends with him and like truly loved him, I started, it started to upset me. It was an injustice. That, that, that he wasn't available chips, for that. That the chips were stacked against him, and no matter what he did. Like Correct. Just, and it, yeah, was, yeah. it was an injustice to me. still remains to be, obviously. Yeah. And that was really the first seed of, you know, and again, it's neither here nor there, but for me, it was like a really interwoven in my faith journey that, like, I then was recognizing a change in my spirit that, like, you know, these aren't things that I ever normally cared about, and I still... And I found I had this wrestling of like, I'm spending 10 to 12 hours a day in an office, but I'm obsessing over what I could do for, you know, Will just became one of many friends that I met that were living on the street. And so 
um, like, you know, it didn't make me any better of a person. Like I'm like nicer. I'm still have all the same problems as anyone else, but I was just very convicted is the only word of like, I can do something. And I had this vision for neighborhood that really bred out of my experience in the film industry is when I graduated college, I never made a resume. I never filled out an application. I just kept getting recommended for work to the point then that Sam Mercer, world-class producer, hired me on the spot without a resume, just based off my interview and recommendations, you know, and I changed my whole life there career-wise, but my thought or the seed of it was, well, if someone like Will never had to fill out an application and never, no one ever knew he was formerly incarcerated and he was just very good at his job and I recommended him, it could transform his entire life because what was stopping him from growing as a human were things our society put in place to make sure that he never grew. And so how many of those things could I, by my power, remove? Again, I'm 25 or whatever at this point. Had no idea what I was getting into, but I, it was like this <laughs> insatiable weight, like a physical weight on my chest that I couldn't deny. I kept trying to be like, I don't, I'm not going to do anything with this dream. I'm just going to, you know. It's but. interesting that you call it a weight, right? Because, you know, it, it certainly was. It was a, a calling and a purpose. Um the, the flip side to that is, and I, and I think you're, you know, you're probably, you're, you're approaching 40 now, right? I think, right? If I did the math. Yeah, I'm 37. There you go. Oh, sorry. Didn't even put you that far, that, that far over the hill. Uh, close to I the, mean, it's closer to 40 than 30. That's yeah, you're right. <laughs> but you, you say this weight, right? Um, but, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's almost as if, um, what, a, what a, and maybe in hindsight, what a blessing it was to have something that drove you so passionately and burned inside of you where, where so many people get, you know, they get to, to 60, 70 years old in life. And they're, they're like, I, I never found, or I never went after that thing. I had something that, that was, you know, I never really found what, what was really just like burning inside me. And I, I think it's kind of cool that you use the word a weight, but yet it was also, it, it, it was transformational in your life. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, And it was, when I say it was a weight, it wasn't like a mental, like, man, I can't stop thinking about it. It was like a physical presence in my chest. The further I denied doing this, it's like the heavier it became. And I tried every excuse in the book not to, you know, because in my mind, it was the decision was I had to quit my job with Sam to start my own company built around the idea of hiring people who were formerly incarcerated, which didn't exist. And on top of that, most of the people in my life we're like, well, why don't you just wait till you're a successful producer yeah. with tons of money and then do that? But I knew I would never do it. I knew that the lure of wealth and power would guide me well away from this mission, which I didn't understand even how hard it would be. But I knew instinctually that I was denying this for my own ambition. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it sounds like really, it's hard because, you know, we're like this spring will be 10 years my company has existed yeah but at the time i had you know i was quitting a very successful job to go move into a homeless shelter to start a business i didn't even i mean i literally googled how to start a business once i had already quit my job <laughs> you know and i at that point i actually didn't know how to make videos like i only knew people that did because i was you know, learning to be a producer. So I, I knew how to put all the pieces together, but I didn't even actually practically know how to bake the bread. So the dream itself was in parts all over the garage, you know, <laughs> like, which is it's funny. I, I, I saw is either on your Ted talk or something else that, that you mentioned, um, that, that, uh, film producing is nothing more. And I don't mean to, to I don't mean to denigrate the, the complexity of it, but it's nothing more than, than project management, right? Just, yeah. As you said, getting all the, the pieces in the place, knowing what the puzzle pieces are and putting them in. So it actually creates the picture, right? Yeah. There are a lot of people that I believe could be very good at producing because it is, it's just fast paced business and you have to be highly communicative and you have to know what hurdles you're clearing. And uh, obviously understanding the logistics yeah. is helpful, but it's teachable. I mean, my business partner, Dan had absolutely no film experience ever and you know with any small business in order for him you know he came on to really reinforce the apprenticeship training side once we started it because i realized very early on i was a terrible teacher but he essentially had to learn to become a producer and now is a producer 
without any film school knowledge, just like in the trenches, this is how it works. So uh, he figured it out. So you've mentioned a couple of times, and I don't think we really, for, for folks listening in, I don't think we really clarify what it is. So neighborhood film company, it's been around about 10 years, started here in Philly um, as a, as an, as a, uh, a production studio. Is that right? Word or film yeah, company? production company. Yeah. Um, but, with the sole mission, I don't want to put words in your mouth that, that aren't accurate, but with the, the mission, obviously, of, of being a profitable business, making films, but with its, uh, its uh, uh, parallel mission of providing employment opportunities for the formerly incarcerated. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah. I mean, it is the most central part of our DNA. It's why our company exists. And wow. we essentially bring on... Now we've, it's one individual that we recruit. We work with Philadelphia judges uh, with their re-entry team, um, phasing of interview application. And then we hire one individual. It's fully paid full-time. They're working on all our jobs and they are integrated as if a new hire at a company and expected to excel. Um, And so it is in no way like charitable. It is, you know, from day one, they're understood that they're an employee. Uh, they're now in a place of privilege by making, you know, they make 40 grand a year as their starting salary. Um, and so they're in, and then we also, you know, put them in, there's counseling as part of the apprenticeship, um, all kinds of other support systems that they may not have in place. You know, we're moving soon into the future about providing housing because that's, a massive hurdle for someone who's returning home, doesn't have a safe place to call their own. So we're really in the business of removing any obstacle that is in someone's way that can stop them from thriving. Because we've recognized that there are certain individuals that with those obstacles removed can and will thrive. And recognizing that in my life, I had many people remove those obstacles to the point where I didn't even know those obstacles could exist. Right. That's is pretty much the definition of privilege, right? It's like I didn't know I could have problems, you yeah. know. Yeah, why isn't so, everyone else doing it this way? Yeah. Yeah, it's like this is easy. Why doesn't everyone go to college? Yeah. You know, doesn't everyone have parents to pay for it, you know? <laughs> so um, uh, yeah. you've been doing this almost ten years and you do one year apprenticeships, right? Yes. Roughly. So are, are you roughly in your ninth, tenth person that you've brought through? Is that right? Uh, we've actually had 11. Oh, really? um, the okay. math is wonky because in the beginning, we started with three. Sure. Then there was one year that we took a year off. As we transitioned, we opened an LA office. Right. So there was this like huge gap of time where like our teams were split. And we decided as a team to not bring someone on as we like transitioned the company. So, so I don't know how the math works out, but there was a, there's been 11. <laughs> With 11 guys and, and, and for folks, and I think this is why I was so fascinated. I, I work for a company and we're, our focus is, is veteran, uh, veteran, uh, support organizations. I, I mean, that's what we try and do is help veterans get a leg up in their transitions or, or, you know, help them get connected with, with resources that the VA might not provide. And, you know, speaking candidly, they're, they're kind of a safe bet. Like they, they've come out of the military. They by and large, yeah. they, you know, they have skill set. For people listening, I think this is why it's such a fascinating story to me. For 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 a guy, a white kid who grew up in the suburbs, uh, you know, who has had little exposure to the incarcerated or the formerly incarcerated, you know, I'm like, oh man, I don't know. Like, uh, there's a lot of uh, of negativity, or there's a lot of risk that comes with that. That and that's probably comes from a place of of ignorance and privilege and everything else. So help me and maybe everybody else. Maybe I'm speak for myself, not not everyone else. Listen. Set the record straight. Like, what have you learned about the formerly incarcerated? And I think you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I, I really want to dig, dig, you know, dissect a little bit of that. What have you learned, and, and where, like, where does society get it wrong about who they are coming out of coming out of prison? Well, I think the overall problem that we face as a society is that anyone who's formerly incarcerated, we blanket them with the idea that they're dangerous mm. or um, something to fear or someone to fear, you know, we were, uh, Dan and I were just a part of this panel with this law firm and there was this doctor that put it so beautifully and in paraphrasing it, um, she's a professor at Drexel, I believe, um, Dr. Taylor and said, our, our society 
our and we'll just maybe speak to America. Yeah. The way we view justice is if you've been harmed, justice to us is to whoever did the harming to us is to harm them more. We view that as justice. Yeah. And it's so wrong. Like our goals are so twisted. Like in my opinion, which I share with many is that our criminal justice system is not set up to help people heal. It is set up to denigrate and destroy. And in, I think the people that come out of prison saying it saved them are, uh, it's in spite of the system, not because of it. So it's like, I always say, I don't punish my children. I discipline them. And there's a difference. Punishment is you aim to hurt them. Discipline is, you know, I'm a stern discipliner with my children, but I'm doing it because I love them and I want them to be stronger. So like our apprentices, like it's a very hard environment to work in, but it's like any good boxing coach. You don't want someone that just like pats you on the back. says, good job out there. No, you want to make them fierce and you want to win. And so our apprentices are a part of a culture that's full of discipline. And, but it's all in the idea of like seeing them become whole, more whole and more beautiful than they already are. But even just affirming that you are someone to be adored regardless of how the whole your whole life has been set up to tell you otherwise and that is what to me is it's an unfair shake for those who are formerly incarcerated like marvin one of our former apprentices puts it great he's like the worst part of prison is not prison it's after prison he's like i thought i had done my time and i realized the rest of my life i'm still serving time i'm not i'm not actually free and so yeah it's and it's and uh it um it bothers me greatly, obviously. Um, especially I think the the biggest distinguisher for me or where it started and where I would hope for it start other people is like I honestly like I mean maybe like not fell in love, but like this friend of mine, like I loved him as a person and a brother. And it was it angered me that he was being sold lies and withheld and being compromised against, you know, he had already done his time. Yeah, here he was stuck. Um, and yes, he made those choices when he was 16, but I made some terrible choices too. <laughs> yeah. But I lived in a very different environment. You know, I was arrested when I was in high school, but it didn't ruin the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, and so I just think, yes, you know, I'm sure someone hearing this, the the people that the devil's advocate are like, yes, there are some people who are dangerous. But we have to ask ourselves, is our goal to make them more dangerous? Because that's what prison does. So you do want to take dangerous people and make them more dangerous? Because right now we don't have pathways to make people better. So what's, uh, and and this is probably, this is a nine hour conversation, but what's (laughs) in, uh, in short terms, what's, what's missing in prison rehab that you guys, and, and I think you probably addressed it a little bit, but what's missing in prison rehab that you guys have helped to fill what what are the gaps that you have helped to fill is it is it skill building is it is it like empathy what what is it that that you come out of prison that you go man if i if if i had one day in charge of the the federal prison system or whatever the state prison system this would be my number one goal putting this in place is is there something that jumps out at you yeah i mean it starts with environment like someone going to prison if i'm a betting man and it's a good bet is not coming from a, a safe whole place, both environment wise, decision making wise, mindset wise, heart wise. People don't go to prison because they're like on the up and up. You know what I mean? Like they're making either active decisions that are hurtful or they were just born in an environment where those decisions were the most readily available for their survival. So then putting them in an environment that's even more toxic than that. It just doesn't make sense. Like, what do you actually expect as a society to happen? But we as a society just want them gone. Put them behind bars, put them behind walls. But those people, they come home. And we have not set them up for any level of success. You know, and so the first thing I do is completely revamp the environment that they're going into. Like, it is actually one of my biggest dreams is to one day own a prison, but that's set up more like an Ivy League school. So that it's actually a more healthy environment than they're coming from on the streets. And 
I think it will garner more radical results in a positive direction. If they're actually, you know, one of the things we do, even when we're interviewing apprentices is just um, acknowledging that the fact that you're getting interviewed for this apprenticeship already shows us that you've made such positive decisions, like affirming, like you are valuable because Mm -hmm. most of the interviews they go on, they're going to be told they're not valuable. They're going to be told like, Oh, sorry, we have a policy here. We can't hire you. Yeah. Either overtly or, 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 or by way of the policy that took place. Right. Yeah. And it's just such an unnecessary, I mean, so that is a long answer, but the first thing is I would just change. I mean, I'd basically wipe clean everything. Like it's, I mean, and I mean, it's, I told you privately, but like my brother's in jail. So yes, I look like a white kid from the suburbs who grew up with all kinds of privilege, but I didn't grow up with tons of money and I grew up in a very chaotic environment. Um, So don't judge a book too quick by its cover. Um, And I've been in a lot of prisons, both with my work and through my family. And I've never been in one where I'm like, damn, this is pretty nice. (laughs) I wonder if they got any vacancies. Like, no, they're disgusting. My Ivy League idea has already come to fruition here. Yeah, my God, I'm moving in. (laughs) Apply for a job. No, they're trashy. The people that work there don't give a shit. It's like, it's awful. It's not, you know. And if there are those people listening, it's like, oh, I'm a CEO and I'm really nice. Then you're one of the few. You know, it shouldn't be, it should be the norm in my opinion for what it's worth right and and so but but to your your point wiping the slate clean because it's not just the the corrections officers the co's uh and the and the prisoners but it's just the overall toxicity of the environment that you would have to start fresh in order to 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 pave new ground right yeah i mean and i know that that's an unrealistic you can't just wipe it all clean, but we're getting to the point where it's becoming such a bipartisan issue just because of how expensive it is yeah. to maintain this type of atrocity. Yeah. Like Crazier something's got to have come, right? Yeah. At one point, some guy said, hey, you know what? I'm going to build a private company that's also going to fly to the, the to into outer space. And people are like, no, that's NASA's job. And then yeah. one guy was like, no, no, watch me. Yeah, yeah. So crazier ideas have come to fruition, right? Yeah. I mean, right now, the only thing stopping me from this is money. Investors, so, the investors listening out here, we're looking for yeah. an Ivy League, Ivy League prison system. Crazy. I mean, private prisons make a lot of money. That's how I right. first learned about them. The corruption behind them. <laughs> Big business. Um, it, it is right. Uh, shifting gears just a little bit. I, I, you, uh, I, I read somewhere um, that you said um, part of what you're looking for. So again, I think for people listening, myself included. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say. Like I go, wow, it gives me a little bit of anxiety thinking about bringing prisoners out is there is there a particular population you draw from if you've and what's your experience if if you got locked up for manslaughter versus murder one versus a dui all of these things are they they indicate a different a a different world that you might be coming from and different challenges that you would bring if i if i brought you to my company i I read somewhere that you said the, the two things you look for are humility and gratitude do you also and and you don't have to answer it if you don't if it, if it's too sensitive. But it, do you also have to look at 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 their record and and what they're in for, or is that sort of like, hey, everybody's everybody gets a a a clean slate, and it's it's what what you're made of. Um. Yes, I, I do feel that I lean more heavily towards the like everyone should be given another chance if they've done their time and have those humility and gratitude and all those things, but we are well aware of all the offenses everyone sitting in front of us for an interview has part of it's part of actually our ability to help advocate for them is to not be afraid to talk about why you went to jail and like uh, extinguish the fear for people, you know, but the population that we work with primarily is by virtue of these judges in Philadelphia that um, run this reentry court and it's, for nonviolent drug offenses. Um, but, you know, we've had apprentices that were locked up for armed robbery, you know, and that makes yeah. you go, Oh shit, that's scary. Yeah. But you also have to take the time. Like we have a lot of processes in place to, um, a recommended from judges They're what they've been doing since they've been out very extensive application process that if they can even fill that out to begin with puts them, you know, most people don't even want to do that. It's a, equivalent to like a college application. And then there's a rounds of interviews 
Um, and what, you know, you come to find is there are individuals who are genuinely repentant of their behavior. And I want to live in a world where I can be forgiven. And unfortunately, like I was going back to, we don't generally, I mean, even now it's like better just to not exist on social media because by God, if you make one mistake, people want to destroy your whole life for it. Right. And I'm kind of, it's tiring. It's a tiring world to live in. And it's the world that people who are formerly incarcerated live in every day. You know, that's you a, a mistake. that's a profound statement that, that I think I, I think other people listening to this go, oh, man, I don't know. You know, and, and you hear that like, uh, I don't know. He was a zebra doesn't change his stripes. Right. He was he was convicted of, of armed robbery. You're like, but he was 18 when he was when he robbed the bank and he's 38 and he's been a model citizen and he's come full circle in the same we all have. I think when you put it that way, a lot of people are exhausted with like the fact that you know, like, uh, I don't know, my, my, my 18 year old kid put something on social media when he was 15 that he thought was funny and he thought it was funny or whatever. Cause he, and I don't, you know, because he was 15 and it turns out it was politically insensitive and it was a stupid thing to do. And if every, if our generation had that, we would all be in the same boat. And I think yeah. that's uh right. I, I think it, that, that, that highlights an interesting thing that allows people, I don't know, I'm just waxing philosophic, but if people say, ah, I don't know, Ricky, man, like if you get locked up, you know, you, you do the crime, you do your time and you know, he shouldn't have been robbing banks or something. I think you're in today's world because other people have the ability to maybe empathize with that a little bit. Like, how about you? The last time you said something on social media and it came back, you know, um, uh, Kevin Hart put something on Twitter 10 years earlier and 10 yeah. years later, he's taken off of the, 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 the Grammys because of something he ten, said 10 years ago. If there's one thing we're lacking, it's forgiveness. And why can't that apply to not only people who are seeking forgiveness from the formerly incarcerated, but who have paid their penance? And I, and I think that's a an interesting way to phrase it. That that I, I would hope people could have some, you know, maybe an aha moment. Like, yeah, you're right. Actually, I am a little bit tired of of being of the unforgiving yeah. world that we live in. I think what people don't recognize is it's, it's also tiring for the people punishing people. Yeah. It's tiring on your spirit, man. It's like it's exhausting to be angry all the time. Like if we don't turn our culture into one that wants to heal, like we're all suffering under the weight of it. Like no one wins, you know? Yes. It's terrible. If someone says something inappropriate or does something inappropriate and they get caught for it, but it's exhausting to be the one swing in the bat too. Yeah. Like, you know, um, so, yeah, and but, you know, keep it on with those who are formerly incarcerated. It's like, you know, there are some really special individuals that we're missing out on having in our society with great stories to tell and great lives to live. And they don't need to be punished anymore. <laughs> it's like not benefiting I, anyone, you know. So, so that's a that's a good segue. What uh, you've done 11 uh, uh, former inmates that have come through and, and, and you've put them through the grind and, and, uh, and they've come out the other side. What's, uh, what are some success stories or, or just, just stories that you can share about, you know, what, I, again, I just think the work that neighborhood film company is doing to take on this mission that, as you said, is a mission that needs to be done because, because we've already, you know, since we as a society have already pushed them to the side and given them a life sentence no matter what their sentence was, it, it, we've given them a yeah. life sentence and you've given them an opportunity to, to maybe just level the playing field a little bit. So, so can you share any kind of success stories or just things that even if, if it's yeah. not success by societal standards, just things you go, man, that was awesome to see him come from or her come from this to this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's uh the success stories are the abundant. It's amazing. Uh, trying to think of, you know, one I'm trying to think of like what to go in. Okay. So we have an apprentice, you know, this is a good example actually of, um, you know, something people should understand listening is we're actually not, there are apprentices that have gone into the film industry, but by and large, we're teaching business practice for whatever field they want to go sure. into. So this gentleman I was just referring to Marvin, um, you know, he was several years ago, um, from the jump, like had no real interest in film production. He wanted to do commercial real estate. And so that's fine. We actually, 
oddly prefer people that don't want to do film yeah, yeah. because it can tend to be in our industry like you get to meet famous people and you're like around all this and they can get a little like you know it gets a little weird but someone who just like doesn't care generally yeah. it does fares a little better like marvin came in very strategically saying like i want to do this with my life these guys are at least preaching that it can happen i'm going to invest and he did a great job on our productions was you know he actually came to iceland with me on a shoot um had a pretty like profound apprenticeship but anyway like the back half of his apprenticeship we just sent him on a ton of general meetings with anyone and anyone who would meet with him, but most specifically in the commercial real estate space. And he eventually got a meeting with the head of the Philadelphia housing authority. Uh, his name is escaping me CEO, but as they essentially made a, uh, they were really taken by him and made an exception, even though he's formerly incarcerated and hired him as a property manager. And he wow. worked there for two years, and now he's working with Connor Barwin's uh, organization doing development. Just got his real estate license that we helped him get, even though he's formerly incarcerated. And with his apprenticeship, we helped him pay off a lot of debt type things. We paid for all his classes to get his licensing. Basically, anything and everything paid for travel to go meet people in New York. So anything where it's like, well, I can't do that because I can't afford it, got rid of that. Um and he's thriving. He just had a, a little baby boy. Um, he just bought a duplex, a rental income property. I mean, he's crushing it. And uh, he'll tell you, it's, you know, these are all gifts that he's able to give to the next generations of his family that otherwise, when we met him, he literally couldn't get a job. It's I, like crazy. I think uh, <laughs> when, when you were, when we first started the conversation, you said, you know, and I'm using my words to to give them a leg up that they otherwise wouldn't have because society's already said, you, you know, you're, the chips are stacked against you no matter what you do, no matter how good you mm -hmm. are. And I, I think what jumps out at me when I said success stories, one of the things that jumped out of there, you said the Philadelphia Housing Authority made an exception. And then I, again, you said uh, he got his real estate license, which was an exception to me that, uh, and, and again, I'm sure there's so much, it's such a deeper story with, with what uh, he's been able to experience. But when you say, Somebody made an exception for somebody and, and knowing full well that he never would have had that exception. He never would have had that, yeah. that, you know, that, that, that pass, uh, to me, that's, that's one of the cool parts of, of what, why I think I was fascinated by the story, knowing that behind the curtain, there was stuff like that going on. Like, Hey, because of the path that we set him on, somebody else saw the, the potential in this guy and made an exception. And then some, and because mm -hmm. he got that, that, because he got that opportunity, somebody else made an exception. And it really is a, uh, like a, 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 it's an upward cycle as opposed to that, that yeah. downward cycle that most of them find themselves in. Everything compounds, right? It's the yeah. why that you have the saying, the poor get poor and the rich get richer. You right. can reverse that cycle, but it takes a lot of people. Like you said, now he's got momentum in a new direction. And it's interesting how his past all of a sudden becomes this like really beautiful story that everyone's like yeah. really endeared by and you get chills and, you know, makes you get like a little misty eyed when he talks. And I'm like, why can't that just be like everyone's story coming home? Like, imagine if they came home to a society that was like eager to embrace them, eager to find them out, you know, eager to be a part of that story. You know, that's my encouragement to people that I'm like you know, take the time to get to know someone who's formerly incarcerated. And I think you'll find that a majority of them are the Marvins of the world. These really beautiful, wonderful people yeah. that made mistakes that were gravely punished. And some of them are really bad things, you know, like I'm not trying to, you know, say that dealing drugs is like not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal. It's awful. Like, and he's well aware of it too, you know, but again, trying to, build a mind like a mindset in our culture yeah. that's more grace like filled versus like punishment filled. You, you, uh, you said getting to know, uh, get to know a, uh, somebody who's formerly incarcerated and I, and I, and I, we have to touch on this because I, I, again, I think, I think probably the 37 year old, you would look back at the 24 year old, you and be like, Hey man, maybe there might've been a, might have been a different way to do this, but I, I again, I, I love it. I love that uh, yeah. you're sort of your your mo. So it seems is that you you have a you have a, a you have a vision and you just go for it. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong. What I read was 
that uh, when you had this idea and you were introduced to Project Home, you actually went and lived in this homeless homeless shelter for eight or nine months with the uh, formerly incarcerated. Is that right? Yeah, was, uh, I had a chance before I started the company to meet with Sister Mary Scullion, who runs Project Home. Yeah. And again, you know, meeting her was as simple as I sent her an email, and she agreed to have me over to you know for dinner. It's like you know everyone because I thought you're gonna ask a lot of people ask like how do I meet someone who's formerly incarcerated? I was like you can call your local prison and say. You know, I used to go into a prison weekly with my now wife and a group of friends, and we used to teach. And I met a ton of people who were formerly incarcerated. And I have friends that are still friends with those people once they got out, you know. Hmm. And there's tons of ways in it because I know I know all the questions are coming. Well, is that safe for a woman? Is that safe for this? I was like, you can set up all kinds of um, proper boundaries. Yeah and make those relationships safer, you know? Um, but you'll be surprised that a lot of them are just like people that wish they hadn't done what they did, recognize the error of the ways they did it. Um, and just want someone to like, believe in them, you know, that they're valuable. So that's, uh, um, but yeah, anyway, right. Isn't that what, that's what we all want, right. It's just to feel valued, to feel, like somebody believes us. Right. And, and it's interesting you say that because that's such a simple human desire and it's, it's profound, but it's, but it's something that, that I, as a, as a, a white kid growing up in, in middle America, I had the fortune to have. And, and for, you know, for other people listening, I wonder if you have an opportunity have that epiphany and go, what, how much different would my life have been if I didn't feel valued even as a kid or, or, or today, mm-hmm. and I didn't have anybody who actually believed in me. You know, and and how much different would my life have turned out? Yeah, I mean, it's a powerful, powerful thing to have someone believe in you. Like, I mean, Sister Mary Scullion was really one of the first to not think I was crazy, <laughs> like to want to quit my job and do this. And her just, I mean, and that was really her only role. Like, she believed in me, affirmed that, like, what I was feeling in my heart, that, like, you know, Again, she's a nun, but she's like, God is speaking to you. And I've had that same experience as I'm a 50 year old woman and I was 25 too. And look where I am. And like, you can come live with us and I will, I'll get behind you. But that was really it. And then I had to do all the rest. But that, that one encounter, that one dinner and that one person just saying, you're not crazy. You can do this gave me a lot of like, I can still remember the night sitting in her, you know, she lived in one of her homes too. And we actually drank this a Coors Light the, uh... together. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What, yeah. what, what interview wouldn't be complete without talking about drinking a beer with a nun? Yeah, exactly. So you went and lived just to be clear, you went and lived. She, she ran, uh, the, the, I don't, I'm, I'm using term, my term halfway house, but it was the, it was the, yeah, a home the... for the formerly incarcerated, right? Um, not just the formerly incarcerated, certainly okay. they were there, uh, people who were homeless, um, oh, okay. in, you know, uh, center city, Philadelphia, uh, one of the spots that had an availability It was like, kind of like I had a little dorm room and then like a shared living space with other people living there. Um, but yeah, and you were there for eight or nine months, just, yeah. like just immersing yourself in that culture. Yeah. That was really part of her mentorship. And that was, you know, you should really, come to know and understand the people you want to serve so that you can yeah. more deliberately like help them. Uh, and it was, it was a very, uh, certainly a beautiful time in my life, but it was uh, a lot of anxiety, a lot of why the hell am I, what am I doing? I am crazy. I have lost my mind. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Um, this is, this is so stupid. And then also mashed with like some of the most, rewarding relationships I could have ever dreamed and just really learning also some of the ills of the nonprofit sector and things that are set up in my opinion to just keep social workers employed versus actually doing good and so it, it was it was illuminating in a lot of ways fast forward in a little bit um concrete cowboy you finished production in 2020 right it's coming out on in Netflix on Netflix this year is that correct yes and it was actually, uh, you actually had some of your, uh, your interns working on that film. Is that right? Yeah. 
Yeah, so we uh, in the summer of when did we shoot it? 2019. Yeah, we shot the movie. Yeah, we had our current apprentice at the time was worked in the production office, and then a former apprentice. Uh, actually, it's a really cool story. Uh, he was an apprentice. He graduated. Um, was doing really great. Then he kind of fell back into some of his old behaviors got locked up again. Um, it was really hard for me personally because uh, his name's Andrew and he would be fine me sharing a story. Um, he was really integral in me making my short film that garnered me the attention to get this feature film made. And so it was really sad for me that he was not going to be a part of the production because yeah. without him on the short film, I would have never been able to make it. So I, uh, had been staying in touch with him. And then I asked him, I don't know. I was just on the why I didn't think of it before. I was like, you know, why don't you send me the information of your attorney? Um, and he was locked up in Vermont actually. So I just started talking to the attorney and I said, listen, is there any way I could get him out? Like he's guilty, busted him. There's just no way around it. He's doing his time. And he's like, listen, uh, I can, we can try, you can, I'll, you know, if you want to write a letter or something to the judge, you can do it. So anyway, mm-hmm. I write this really exhaustive letter and like do all this stuff, but the judge reads it and actually lets him out because I guaranteed I could hire him. No way. And she said, all right, I'll take a bet on it. If he works on this, you actually hire him. So I had everything set up with our team on the movie. He got out, we booked transportation to get him home. We got a PO assigned to him. Um, and then he started working, he worked on the movie. And then after that, he went to work on the Apple show servant and some other movies hasn't stopped working since. And so the judge decided just recently in the last month to give him time served and put him on parole. So he's not going to jail. He was going to serve like a 15 year sentence. Wow. And so he proved like my time is better served outside. And now he's, yeah, he's just doing his thing. Yeah. We, again, we and talk so, about success stories. I mean, is there anything more yeah. rewarding than, than knowing that you just gave somebody a second shot, right? That's yeah. A, I mean, he's like a third shot. I mean, yeah, yeah. Or, like, or a third. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Third shot. But you know, it's again, it's like, I know <laughs> Drew really well and I know I actually just personally don't think prison is going to make his life better or he's, you know, and, and acknowledging yes, what put him there were his stupid decisions, which is what I call them like you're smarter than this um and but all i can do is it costs me so little to use my for whatever a zeitgeist term privilege yeah and power yeah to go maybe this judge will read this letter and you know he literally showed up the next day was on the locations team and worked and was an invaluable member of of that project especially you know we were filming in north philadelphia the community that he grew up in and anyone that knows anything about filmmaking being in locations is you're doing a lot with like the neighborhoods and the places you're filming. So having someone literally from that neighborhood who I trusted, uh, was an invaluable resource, you know? And so, and it was cool to even have a production who supported my vision as a director to like, Hey, we're going to spend money to get someone home and do all the, I mean, we're going to hire them. And we're going to find the money in the budget to hire him. I don't care, you know? So that's, uh, that's, that's really cool, yeah. man. So, um, Hey, I don't, I don't want to keep you too long. We're almost at an hour, but, uh, uh, concrete cowboy comes out in Netflix. Uh, I can't help but say, Hey man, there's, there's, there was a lot of formerly incarcerated folks that contributed to it on the early part on the later stages. Uh, I, I think that's cool, especially when you, you know, you're a little bit about, the, what, what went into making it and, uh, and knowing the mission that that neighborhood film company, uh, put forward to, to make this, um, uh, where can folks find you on, on social media, on the interweb? Uh, well, pretty much my only social media is Instagram. So, uh, neighborhood film is our Instagram, uh, that I need to get back on there slacking. Yeah. Uh, that's this whole side yeah, job I mean, by itself. Yeah, it's, it is is a lot of work. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have a website, neighborhoodfilmcompany.com. I, I know we're on Facebook too. If you're if fancy Facebook, it's just neighborhood film company. Um, I think we're on Twitter. I don't know. 
<laughs> I stick to Instagram and uh, Facebook. Those yeah. are strongest channels. Yeah. Hey, somebody yeah. over on Twitter? Yeah. I know. I was going to ask Dan, my business partner, who's here with me. Uh, no, we are on Twitter. I know that. I just, uh, we have been slow in our engagement, but I will. I do check the messages and stuff. I try to, I try to chat with whoever, you know. Um, and uh, for folks that want to get involved with helping formerly incarcerated, are there are there like national organizations out there that that uh, that you would advocate for, or is there is there some way that that folks on on the level can like if I wanted to contribute in some way, is there is there somewhere that I go to? Yeah, I mean, actually, our company so how we facilitate our apprenticeship is we have a nonprofit it's called okay. working film. So that's actually how we subsidize and try to pay for, you know, this extra salary for someone who has no training um, for any of those things. Like, you know, when we travel on jobs, those clients don't typically pay to travel a production assistant. So we pay that out of the nonprofit, any type of housing help, or like in the case of Marvin, you know, it was very expensive to get all these, licenses to the thousands pay that out of the nonprofit. So if people want to contribute on our website, there is a way for you to give, you can, you know, be a monthly donor, a one-time donor. Um, and all of that, you know, neighborhood takes on all the expenses that people don't like to pay for. Like, um, all the money goes towards the training or towards the apprentice's salary, like neighborhood pays all the other overhead, um, you know, Dan, our executive director doesn't get paid to be the executive director. I don't get paid, whatever. It all is very streamlined towards that because neighborhood can offset all the non-sexy costs that people don't like to donate to. <laughs> the, the nonprofit is working film. Right? Yeah. And, and on, uh, our we on our website, there's a, on neighborhoodfilmcompany.com, there's an apprenticeship tab and you can see all that. Oh, Perfect, man. man. We'll uh, we'll make sure we put that up, and and it's uh, neighborhoodfilmcompany.com. Looking for look for the uh, the apprenticeship tab, and that's where you can donate. Hey, Ricky, thanks very much for for spending time with us, man. Again, it's a fascinating story, and and uh, uh, we love what you're doing, brother. We think it's it's awesome, and uh, if we can help you get a little bit of exposure for not only just neighborhood film company, and and certainly Concrete Cowboy is going to do uh, gangbusters, but but uh, just for the nonprofit to help uh, to help a section of the population that. Uh, that could use a leg up, man. It's uh, it, it, we hope we can contribute in some way. And we, we think uh, what you're doing is awesome. Appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the green castle podcast. Please be sure to give us a like, a thumbs up, a share. You can find us at greencastleconsulting.com forward slash podcast or on all the major podcast channels and the social media channels, including our YouTube channel. Thanks very much. We'll see you on the next episode.